May I begin with a kind of a personal question this morning? Are, are any of you in financial debt right now? <laughs> Silly question in a way. If you live in the United States, if you're a citizen here, you are almost $20 trillion in debt. Yeah. Which, uh, last time I looked, came out to $61,301 per U.S. citizen. So if you want to write out your check and leave it at the Welcome Center this morning... We'll see that that gets to Uncle Sam. Actually, what I'm thinking about, though, is not that kind of national debt so much as the personal kind of financial debt with which we live. We are a nation of of debtors. I read recently that the average household debt in the United States is $132,000. And what really astounded me was I read that uh, when a person in the United States dies, they are still $62,000 in debt when they die. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that the language that Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic, has one word that means both debt and sin. One word meaning both of those things, debt and sin. And we have Jesus telling a story about debt that's actually a story about sin and about forgiveness. And it's that story we're going to be looking at today as a part of this series that we are in this summer, looking at these amazing stories that Jesus told, hoping that we, along with the hearers who heard those stories initially, you know, can learn the point that Jesus is telling about life in the kingdom of God. So let's set up this story a little bit. Jesus is talking to a group of people, and he's trying to explain to them what, what forgiveness looks like in, in God's kingdom. And he's explaining to them that it's not, it's not like the way the world treats forgiveness. And he says, you know, if, if someone offends you, if someone hurts you, the first thing you should do is call Hupi and Abraham. 1-800... <laughs> No, he didn't say that. He talked about a gracious way that we are, are to handle things when somebody uh, hurts and offends us. And at that point, Peter, Jesus' disciple, who often says the obvious, says, well, yeah, but how many times should I forgive somebody? And then he says, as many as seven times? When you think of it, I mean, that's, that's rather extravagant, isn't it? Have you ever forgiven somebody seven times? I mean, those of you who are parents of teenagers, right? You know, your, your teenager breaks the house rule once, maybe twice, third time, probably the hammer comes down, right? In fact, that was sort of the, um, the accepted rule in Jesus' day among the Jews that we would forgive three times. So Peter is being pretty wildly extravagant. Seven times sounds pretty extreme. And the reply, remember, that Jesus gives is, not, not seven times, but 77 times. 77 times. I mean, that almost sounds stupid, doesn't it? That's so impractical as to be ridiculous. Who is going to forgive 77 times? Obviously, Jesus is saying you just, you don't keep track, you don't keep count, you just keep on forgiving. And because that strikes us as being such an impossible way to live, even in the kingdom of God, Jesus tells a story 
to help those people and to help us understand about forgiveness. So on the surface, it's a story about debt. But underneath, we understand that it's a story about sin and about forgiveness. So we're going to read this story together. It's found in the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And it will be on the screen, and it's in your bulletin. And I'll read it to you. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So as he began uh, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. (laughs) Powerful story. The story is of a king who's wanting to settle his financial accounts. And he calls in his servants one at a time to collect the money that's owed to him. And he brings in one servant who owes him a lot of money. In the, in this translation, in the NIV Bible, it says he owed him 10,000 bags of gold. When I was growing up, the, the translations of the Bible we used, used to call it talent. Remember that? He owed him, you know, 10,000 talents? It always confused me a little bit. I thought of talents was like juggling or playing the accordion, you know. How do you owe somebody talents? But a talent, a good way to think of a talent is it was, it was like a, a bar of silver that weighed about 75 pounds. So when it talked about talents, it was talking about of money. So a talent then would be worth about 6,000 denarii. So you may be asking, well, so what, what is a denarii worth? And a denarii was thought to be about one day's wage for the average working person. 
So I guess you could say that if a person worked for 6,000 days, like 15 years, kept his denarii that he got paid every day, at the end of that time, with his 6,000 denarii, he could buy one talent, or as the translation here says, one bag of gold. But this guy didn't just owe, you know, one talent, one bag of gold. How many bags of gold did he owe the king? 10,000 bags of gold. I've heard it said that that would be comparable today, perhaps, to two and a half billion dollars. Two and a half billion dollars. You think you're in debt. Whoa, two and a half billion dollars this guy owes the king. Well, obviously he can't pay it. So the king orders that the man be sold into slavery and that his wife and his children be sold into slavery and everything that he has be sold to repay the king. Now, actually, that wasn't a a way for the king to recoup his loss. I mean, it wasn't going to come near repaying the the two and a half billion dollars that he was owed. It wouldn't pay the interest on one day. But what it was was a punishment on that man. And it was fair and just and right. You know, the king had every right to do that. He owed the debt. He could not pay it. He should suffer the consequences. But the servant falls on his knees and begs the king's mercy. Says, please be patient with me and I will repay you. And the king does an amazing thing. He forgives the debt. He says, all right, I will cancel the debt. You are free. You can go. Now, let's make sure we understand what has happened here because it is so um, unbelievable. Maybe we need to analyze it a little bit. When I was growing up, my home pastor taught a concept that really changed my thinking about God and about my relationship with God. And it's become an important part of, of what we teach here at Orchard Hill. And let me remind you of what it is. Uh, and maybe you've never heard this before. It's really the definition of three words. And there's no place where they are clearer than in this story that Jesus tells. The words are justice and mercy and grace. Now, we are a people who want justice, don't we? Oh, there's nothing that bugs us more, you know, than when, when something seems unjust or unfair. And so the king is in a position where he can administer justice. The just thing to happen would be that this servant who cannot pay his debt be sold into slavery. That's just and that's fair. And justice is getting what you deserve. We want that. We want to see that in life, especially applied to other people. We want to see that people get what they deserve. We don't want them getting away with things, right? There's a part of us that longs for justice to be done. And boy, you hear about some trial where you feel like justice hasn't been done. It wrangles us, doesn't it? It makes us angry. It makes us kind of hurt inside. The king could have administered justice, but he doesn't. Or he could have given mercy. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. So what the servant deserved was to be thrown into prison or be sold into slavery. But the king could have listened to his plea and said, All right, you know, I will give you more time. I'll give you a year or ten years to repay me 
you know? That would have been mercy. The servant doesn't get what he deserves. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. But the king doesn't show justice, and he doesn't show mercy. He shows grace. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Try to put yourself in the position of this servant for a moment. Imagine what it was like. Imagine the feeling when you're going to stand before the king and you realize that there is no possible way that you can repay this debt and you know what's going to happen. Not only are you going to become a slave for the rest of your life, but you're going to watch as the people that you love most in the world, your spouse and your children, are also taken away and sold into slavery and you will never see them again. You will only know that because of your stupidity or lack of diligence or poor mistakes or whatever the reason is, because of you, they are going to suffer for the rest of their lives. And that would be justice. And mercy would be when the king says, all right, I will give you more time. But grace is when we are given what we do not deserve. And the king goes beyond justice and beyond mercy to grace. I forgive the debt. It's gone. The burden, the unbearable burden of this debt that you cannot possibly repay is taken away. Imagine how the servant felt. Imagine the joy and relief as he left that throne room. And he goes out and he meets a, a fellow servant who owes him, it says here, a few hundred silver coins. Those would be the denarii, maybe $4,000. Now that's a real debt, isn't it? $4,000 is $4,000, right? But forgetting about what he has just experienced, the grace he has experienced from the king, he grabs his servant and he begins to choke him and he demands that his fellow servant pay him the money that he is owed. And the servant then falls down on his knees and says to his fellow servant almost the exact same words that this servant has used before the king, have mercy upon me, please give me time and I will pay back everything. But instead, the servant goes to the officials and demands that his fellow servant be thrown into debtor's prison where he will spend the rest of his life. The amazing thing is that that's fair, right? This first servant has every right to demand repayment. This first servant has every right to demand that if he is not repaid, that his fellow servants suffer the consequences of his debt, that he be thrown into debtor's prison. That's fair and that's just. But when other servants see what has happened, and when the king hears what has happened, they are furious. Why is that? I mean, wasn't it fair? Wasn't it fair that he demand to be repaid the $4,000 and that the, the man be thrown into prison if he could not? Yeah, that was fair. That was just. So why are they so angry? Because they realize that the amazing grace that was shown to this first servant did nothing to change his heart. It didn't change him. It was, it was like he doesn't even appreciate this amazing thing that the king has done for him. And so the king calls the first servant back in, and he calls him a wicked servant. He says, didn't, didn't it matter to you? Don't you remember what I just did for you? you know? 
And in his anger, the king requires that the servant be thrown into prison where he will be tortured and in torment for the rest of his life. So the story then is about financial debt, but we realize as Jesus sums it up at the end that it's actually about forgiveness and grace. And so what does Jesus say at the very end then, the point of the story? He says, you know, this is how your heavenly Father will treat you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, there we've got it. So that's the lesson for today. Trouble is, forgiveness is so darn hard, isn't it? I think forgiving other people is one of the toughest things that God asks us to do. So let's look at the parable and see who these characters are. Obviously, the king is God, a king who is owed a debt. And the first servant would be, hmm, oh, you and me, that we owe an enormous debt to God. Now, remember I said earlier on that in Aramaic, the same word means debt and sin. And so when Jesus is talking about debt, he's really talking about sin. That the debt we owe to God is because of sin. And the amount of debt, the amount of sin is so huge, the debt can never be repaid. One of the difficulties that we have is we don't think of ourselves as sinners. At least we don't think of ourselves as great sinners. I mean, we look around us, we see people on the news, and we can always find people who seem like they are a lot more sinful than we are. But the reality, God tells us, is that we are all in such sin debt. Our sin has accumulated so much that we could never repay it. I remember when my, when my best friend Paul and I were in grade school, we set up a high bar in the backyard and we would try practicing high jumping over the bar. It was probably, I don't know, four feet high, maybe, I don't know, and we felt pretty good, you know, as we could raise it, you know, a half inch and an inch and jump a little bit higher. Seemed pretty good. We've got a guy here at Orchard Hill who was a world-class pole vaulter, Jacob Pauli. Jacob would pole vault over 19 feet, you know. Compared to Jacob at 19 feet, our four feet, you know, seems pretty puny. The problem is, though, that where God sets the bar is not at 19 feet or 20 feet. God sets the bar at 1,000 feet or 10,000 feet. And when we think about where this holy, just, righteous God has set the bar for our lives, it doesn't matter whether you're jumping 19 feet or 4 feet, you're not getting anywhere close. That's your life in relationship to a holy God. There has never been a day of your life when you have not offended God, when you have not broken His law, you never have a totally pure, honest, good, unselfish motive. You never go through life, through a single day, without violating the law of God. And the debt that you owe God has accumulated to such an extent, it is unpayable. And God 
who is a just and a fair God, could say to us, therefore, you will suffer the consequences of your debt that you cannot repay. And the consequence is separation from God in this life and for eternity. But the Bible tells us that God, rather than treating us in a way that would reflect justice, treats us in a way that reflects grace. That God says to us, through His Son, Jesus Christ, just what the King said to the first servant, I forgive the debt. You could never repay it. In a thousand lifetimes, you could never repay the debt. But I forgive the debt. I lift it off your shoulders. The kind of debt that that ties you down, that robs you of opportunity and freedom and joy and security, I take all those things away and I free you of the debt. That's the kind of God who's pictured in this parable. That's the kind of God who is king of the kingdom in which we live as followers of Jesus Christ. So then, God says, now... You are to go and forgive others the way I have forgiven you. But boy, it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. So let's think a little bit about what forgiveness for us as followers of Jesus is, what it is and what it's not. First, it's not dependent upon the other person. It's not a matter of the other person who has offended us showing remorse or sorrow. I mean, haven't you had this experience when someone hurts you, they offend you in some way, and you think to yourself, if he would just say he's sorry, if he would just admit that he was wrong, if he would just come and ask for my forgiveness, I would forgive him. If she would just come and grovel a little bit, if she would just eat humble pie, then I would forgive But that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not dependent upon the other church, other person, and their remorse or their sorrow or their asking for forgiveness. Forgiveness is totally on our shoulders. It's our responsibility. That other person may not even know that they've forgiven us. That other person may never come to us and say they are sorry. They may not be sorry. That doesn't excuse us from offering forgiveness to them. Secondly, forgiveness is not condoning the offense. I think sometimes we feel, if I forgive them, it's like saying it didn't matter or that it didn't hurt, when the reality is it probably mattered a great deal. It may have hurt you deeply on many levels. And I just get the feeling sometimes, if I forgive them, it's like, uh, it's like I'm saying it doesn't matter. You know? But it did matter, and it does hurt. Sometimes it is, has pained us deeply. It's maybe changed the rest of our lives. It has affected us in ways that we struggle even to put into words or to explain to ourselves. But forgiveness... It's not saying what you did was okay. It's not saying it doesn't matter. Quite the contrary, for us as followers of Jesus, to say we forgive in spite of how serious the offense may have been. Third, forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation. I can say I forgive you, 
But that doesn't mean that things are going to be the same as they were before. Sometimes, even though our goal might be reconciliation, sometimes the consequence of what they have done means that things are never going to be the same. Yes, I forgive you, but I can't trust you anymore. Yes, I forgive you, but I'm not going to let you spend time with my kids anymore. Yes, I forgive you, um, but I'm not going to do business with you anymore. In fact, I think sometimes it might even mean, yes, I forgive you, but I can't stay married to you anymore. To say we forgive doesn't always mean that reconciliation is possible. And that sometimes when we forgive, even as a part of our forgiveness, we need to be setting boundaries. We need to be able to look at a healthy way in which we can proceed into the future. So if that's, if that's what forgiveness is not, what is it? And let me suggest a couple things. First, I believe that forgiveness is usually a journey. It begins with an act of, of the will. I decide I'm going to forgive, but that's just the beginning of the journey that may take a long, long time, months or years even. And we may realize that, that we have to kind of forgive again and again before it moves from our heads to our hearts. I remember a guy with whom I had a, a bad relationship whom I felt had hurt and offended me in some ways, and I believed I had forgiven him. But we were out of contact for several years. And then uh, several years later, when we, when we ran into each other again and were together again, I realized that the anger that I felt, that the, the bitterness, you know, was still right here. And that I still had a long way to go in that journey of forgiveness. That it begins with, a, with an act of the will to say, all right, I'm going to forgive you. That means I'm going to, I'm going to give up my right to, to get even with you. But it may be a long time before that change begins to take place in my heart. It was just a little over ten years ago when we saw on the news startling coverage of a man whose name was uh, Charles Roberts. He was 32 years old. He went into a classroom in an Amish community in uh, in Pennsylvania and uh, he made the teacher and the boys leave the school and he bound the ten girls who were there in that schoolhouse and he shot them one after another and then shot himself and I think what stunned the nation was not only the absolute cruelty and evil of that act but I think what was equally shocking to us was how those parents and that community forgave. That very day that their children were shot and killed by this man, they took food to the murderous widow and children. Five days later, when they buried their daughters, five of the ten girls were killed. The other five seriously wounded. The day they buried their daughters, they also went to the funeral of the man who killed their children. 
And as money began to flow in from people who wanted to help, especially those families who were dealing, some of them with horrendous injuries to their children. One of the girls was paralyzed for life, huge medical expenses. As the money began to pour in, they diverted the money to the family of the man who had killed their children. And uh, on the 10th anniversary of that terrible event, they interviewed the father of of two of the girls. One of his daughters had been murdered, the other seriously wounded. And he talked about forgiveness. And he talked about the fact that he had decided, and they as a Christian community had decided they would forgive. But, he said, it took years, he said, years before I was able to lose the anger and the hatred and the bitterness that I felt. I want to be able to forgive that way. But it's hard. Secondly, I forgive because it's for my own soul's good. You know, the person who has offended me, they may not even know that they've done it. And my being bitter and angry at them may not affect them at all. But it affects me. It affects my soul and my heart. I've heard it compared to, to drinking rat poison and then hoping the rat will die. You know, it doesn't affect the rat at all, but it affects us. And I would guess that many of us have known people who have been wronged and were unable to forgive. I've had many people come to my office over the years who were dealing with this struggle with forgiveness and whose hearts had become brittle and bitter and angry and hard and it changed their lives in many ways it ruined their lives because they were unable or unwilling to forgive I forgive because God has commanded it and I believe God commands it because he knows I need it for my heart for my own soul I'm called to forgive and finally Forgiveness is always costly. What did it cost the king to forgive that servant? Two and a half billion dollars, right? The king had to eat that loss. What does it cost you to forgive? It always costs something. It costs you the right to get even. The law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth doesn't apply in the kingdom of heaven. It costs you the right to to hurt the other person back. It may cost you the right to gossip about them, to wish them ill, to be happy every time you hear something bad happening to them. It's always going to cost us something to forgive. And what's our example in that? It's God Himself, isn't it? What does it cost God to forgive us our sin debt? You know what it cost Him. You see, God never stops being a just, a righteous, and a fair God. The Bible says, will not the God of all the earth do right? Yes, He will always be just. He will always be righteous. So how can He be both just and gracious? And He does it by taking upon Himself the punishment the consequence of our sin. 
And when the blood flowed from the hands and feet of Jesus as he hung on the cross, when the blood ran down into his eyes from the crown of thorns that had been pushed down upon his head, when he struggled with his last breath, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Isn't that an amazing story? I don't mean the story that Jesus told. I mean the story that Jesus lived. That a righteous, holy God, whom we had offended, to whom we owe a debt we could never repay, took the debt and the consequences upon himself and died so that this holy, righteous God could say to us, I cancel the debt. I free you from it. Now, now go and forgive others. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we wind up this teaching. Uh, If you were here last week and when Jeff taught, you remember that Jeff was teaching about the kingdom of God and he closed his teaching with with the Lord's Prayer, which has that beautiful statement, Thy kingdom come. There's another beautiful, important statement in the Lord's Prayer, isn't there? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and we're going to close that prayer by reciting, saying together the Lord's Prayer. The words will be on the screen. When we come to that phrase, one of the problems with the Lord's Prayer is we just say it without thinking about it. You know, When we come to that phrase, and when you say those words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Mean it. Let it come from your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a holy and a righteous God. You deserve absolute obedience. We have accumulated a debt of sin that we can never repay. If you did not take upon yourself the consequence of our sin, we would be lost eternally. We thank you that we have experienced your grace, that we not only have been forgiven, but you have welcomed us into your kingdom, that you've called us your sons and your daughters as we become followers of Jesus Christ, as we accept this gift of salvation. And so as followers of Jesus, we would pray together in sincerity the words that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 